Blog Talk Radio. show I just uh, right before I came on air I spilled a giant bottle of seltzer on my laptop (laughs) when I tell you I broke Usain Bolt's record running for the paper towels I think I literally mean it I think I actually beat his 100 yard dash record Um, I don't know how but I successfully saved the day at least to this point I wiped the keyboard down, and it appears like nothing hit any circuitry or whatever. And so, at least for right now, I'm good. But if the show suddenly stops working, you know exactly why that is. So I'm just giving everybody a heads up on that front. Um, Hope everybody had a wonderful new year. Uh, I got a lot of stuff in today's show that is fun and interesting, a lot of new stuff. So Gislaine Maxwell, whose name I still don't know how to pronounce, she uh, was found guilty, and I have a wee bit of speculation for everybody that we'll get into. We have Bernie Sanders eviscerating Elon Musk. Yes, you heard that correctly. CNN was trolled to perfection on New Year's Eve. Hillary Clinton is already blaming leftists for the future election losses of corporate Democrats. So sit back, relax, sip some lemonade, and um, get ready, because we have a wonderful show scheduled for everybody today. Um, <clears throat> I want to start with, let's start with the Gislaine Maxwell stuff, because this is absolutely interesting. It's fascinating stuff. Let's do it. So while we were gone, uh, we learned that Gislaine Maxwell um, was found guilty. She was found guilty on five of six charges, and We also got this little gem that dropped after the trial. So take a look. 
This is reported in Law and Crime. Federal judges order release of Jeffrey Epstein's civil settlement at issue in lawsuit against Prince Andrew. So let me explain what that means. There was like, there was some sort of immunity that was granted to Epstein's uh, high-profile clients. And so they say in the article, federal judges ordered the unsealing of a 2009 settlement agreement that Prince Andrew has claimed insulates him from civil lawsuits accusing him of having sexually abused a 17-year-old girl. The more than a decade-old deal signed by the late sex offender Jeffrey Epstein and the prince's accuser Virginia Jeffrey is said to have shielded broad categories of Epstein's powerful associates, including royalty, from civil liability. Quote, because Prince Andrew is a senior member of the British royal family, he falls into one of the expressly identified categories of persons, i.e. royalty, released, released from liability under the release agreement, along with politicians, uh, academics, businessmen, and others allegedly associated with Epstein. Quote, the prince's lawyer, Andrew B. Brettler, wrote in a memo on October 29th. Now, so you're about to hear, they go on to say Prince Andrew and Jeffrey will face off in a federal court on January 4th, 2022. Uh, so it appears like even though they had some sort of immunity, perhaps they no longer have that immunity. And again, the update is that judges ordered the release of the details of whatever that agreement was. So we're going to be able to see what that agreement was. But there's a little line in this piece which floored me. And I wonder how many of you will notice it right off the bat before I explain it. But here, I'll, I'll give you it. Senior U.S. District Judge Loretta Preska, who is presiding over Dershowitz's case, and Louis Kaplan, who is presiding over the princes, ordered the release of the 2009 civil deal on Wednesday, scheduling the document's public release for January 3rd, 2022. Okay. The judge's names, Loretta Preska and Louis Kaplan. Those rang a bell for me. You know who they are? These are the exact same judges who railroaded Stephen Donzinger. So these are the same judges that we know, in no uncertain terms, are deeply corrupt. At least one of them is part of the Federalist Society. You know, it's the far-right judicial group. They have connections to all sorts of corporate interests. They're, they wantonly disregarded the Constitution and the law in railroading Stephen Donziger. What are the chances that these are the judges who are going to oversee aspects of the Epstein case. Now, again, to be fair, in this particular instance, they were the ones who ordered the release of the 2009 civil deal. So that's good. But I got to tell you guys, I'm trying my best not to go full Alex Jones as I read that they're involved with this case. Because that makes me believe you're not going to get an honest conclusion. You're not going to get decisions that are unbiased and objective and fair. Because they're as bad as can be. I mean, again, when you look at the details of that Stephen Donziger case, they had no regard for justice at all, not even close. But listen, it, perhaps an even bigger part of the conversation, so if this goes off the rails, I wouldn't be surprised at all based on the fact that these judges are involved, but the even bigger part of the conversation is, okay, they got uh, Jif Lane. 
just like Maxwell, without a doubt, knows where all the bodies are buried, metaphorically speaking, and maybe even not metaphorically speaking. She was the closest associate that Jeffrey Epstein had. She knows exactly who was involved in criminal activity and the details of those criminal activities. And there are, I have no doubt about it, just records on top of records within records about whichever billionaire or CEO or politician or academic were molesting, harassing, raping young girls. So, and I said this the second we got the news about Ghislaine Maxwell, the Fed should cut a deal with her. Hey, you tell us, we're going to go after the big fish. We're going to burn the house down. So you give us the information on the big fish, and then you get a lighter sentence. So, I mean, that's, that's sitting there waiting for, waiting for it to happen. Like, all this information is just available. And I have no doubt that she knows this stuff, and I have no doubt that what she has, I would say she has no incentive not to squeal, but we all know what happened to Jeffrey Epstein, so maybe she feels like if I say anything, I'm, I'm donezo, but, you know. Everybody thought she was donezo up front anyway. Everybody thought they'd somehow find a way to ax her anyway, and she's still kicking at this point. So, But then, look, a, a broader conversation opens up, which is, um, are the feds even interested in real justice and truth? And the answer is probably not. And the answer is probably that there are people who were on the payroll. There are people who are part of that good old boys club who are among the feds. So... If that's the case, they don't want the truth. They'd rather get a smaller fish and not the biggest fish, because I have no doubt she knows all the details about Donald Trump, for example, and what he was involved with when it comes to Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, he was on the flight logs. We learned that recently, that the, the uh, pilot, airplane pilot was like, oh, yeah, we saw him on the plane plenty of times. Bill Clinton, we already knew he was on the plane. So in theory, she could cut a deal where... We get Donald Trump, we get Bill Clinton, we get whoever else, whatever other billionaire politician was involved. Um, but my guess is somebody up that chain of command is going to be like, well, pump your brakes, hold your horses. We're not doing that. I'm actually re-watching the series The Wire um, right now, wonderful HBO show um, that came out, I guess, in like 2004, around there. And um, yeah... It, you, you find the more you watch, the more you realize, like, oh, the cops who are actually trying to do a good job are getting stonewalled because there are cops who are up the chain of command and up the hierarchy who are getting paid by the drug lords. So they can sort of act any portion of it that they don't want to be unveiled. And you get the sense, like, maybe something like that is happening with the feds here, too. Because there's been, and we covered the stories, but you had Ehud Barak, former Israeli prime minister, was um, in the meeting with Steve Bannon and Jeffrey Epstein when Steve Bannon told Jeffrey Epstein, you were the only one I was afraid of when he came to Trump's campaign. And Jeffrey Epstein was like, as you should have been. Why was Ehud Barak there? Well, because one of the, the theories is that maybe they're Israeli intelligence. Maybe the whole Epstein outfit was Israeli intelligence. You get dirt on these politicians, you can hold her over their head, and you can you know, basically use that as leverage and get whatever you want from the American government. Very possible. But just like Maxwell is in a position where she could tell all. 
She probably fears for her life, though, so maybe she wouldn't do that for that reason. And maybe there are no terms of a deal that are on the table because secretly, whoever's in charge or somebody along that chain of command doesn't want the biggest fish because the biggest fish will make sure come hell or high water, they get protected. It's funny, one of the, one of the things where there appears to be near universal agreement is that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself. I remember when that happened, the left and the right. I mean, it was like the, the quickest truce I've ever seen in my life. Everybody on the left and everybody on the right was like, this dude didn't kill himself. He was the CEO of Elite Sex Crimes Incorporated. So he knew all the stuff about elite sex crimes. And the elites were probably afraid, oh, he's going he's gonna to blow the whistle on us. And so some action was taken, to say the least. And then you get into the specifics and the details of how he passed, and you realize it's not consistent with suicide. But anyway, I digress from that. By the way, if you like this show, uh, subscribe. If you like this show, click the like button, leave a comment, and um, support the show if you can on Patreon, because without a doubt, this segment is one of the many segments that will instantly be demonetized. Because they'll, they'll, I mean, they lump this in with the most insane conspiracy theories you could think of. The stuff that I'm telling you right now is definitely on the, the blacklist in terms of, do not let anybody talk about that. I remember I did a segment, whatever the last segment was that I did on, did on Epstein when it was uploaded, instant demonetization. I was like, well, we know because Epstein's in the title, that's what's going to happen. So anyway, if you support the show, uh, please help out in those respects. I'd really appreciate it because what, they try, what YouTube tries to do is disincentivize you from talking about this kind of stuff. That's what they do. They don't want you talking about this stuff. In the same way, they don't want you talking about Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Israel, almost anything involving foreign policy they don't want you to touch. Uh, so if you could help out on that front, I'd really appreciate it. But Listen, Gislaine knows where all the bodies are buried, and she could talk, but my guess is there are a bunch of hurdles in the way, and those hurdles are uh, enormous to say the least. Okay. Let's continue. So Bernie Sanders um, was on the Joe Rogan podcast a while back, back when he was running for president. Now, not to brag or anything, even though that's exactly what I'm about to do, uh, your boy is the reason why he got on. It was because, um, you know, I've been on Joe's podcast a bunch of times, and I'm friends with him, and I was also um, friends with Bernie's campaign manager, Fat Shakir, and so I was able to behind-the-scenes sort of facilitate that. And I, I, I'm actually very proud of that because when you go and look at that podcast and you read the comments, I mean, it proved exactly what I thought would happen, which is Bernie changed the minds of a lot of Joe Rogan's listeners. You have plenty of people in Joe Rogan's audience view themselves as apolitical or view themselves as centrist. He has plenty who view themselves as right wing. Um, but my, the sense I get is that even the ones who are right wing are right wing in some sort of vague, I'm anti-establishment sense. And so as soon as Bernie, these people got exposed to Bernie and they realized, oh, he is probably the most anti-establishment candidate. He's the one who wants to shake up the status quo and business as usual the most. He's the one who's clearly fighting for me. And even if I might not agree with him on, on certain things, clearly his heart's in the right place and he means well, and he's trying to improve my life and everybody's life around me, so I like him. So you go read those comments and man, almost bring a tear to your eye how much 
uh, Bernie is able to, simply by telling the truth and explaining his philosophy, make people who used to think he was crazy go, I actually kind of like this guy. So I, I believe in the power of persuasion and discourse. And I don't think you're ever going to change everybody's mind. Like if Bernie sat down with Sean Hannity, you wouldn't get that same reaction from, from Sean Hannity's audience. But I knew that from Rogan's audience, you probably would get that. So um, I'm actually really proud of the fact that I got him on and then he knocked it out of the park and Joe did a great job in the conversation. So it was glorious. If you haven't watched that yet, go check it out and go read the comments because it'll really bring a smile to your face. But anyway, um, so he was on Joe Rogan's show. Another person who Joe Rogan is uh, friendly with is Elon Musk. He's been on his show at least once, probably multiple times. Um, well, a brilliant YouTube user, and I want to give full credit. So let me, I jotted down the name here, and it's really important I give it because this guy deserves it. Justin T. Brown on YouTube. Justin T. Brown. Everybody go subscribe to that channel. And you're not gonna, I'm going to show you some of the video here. You're not going to see the whole video. I'll leave the whole video in the video description box, so click it and watch the entire video. But he spliced together Bernie Sanders eviscerating Elon Musk in a fake conversation. And, you know, both of the, the videos are from when they were respectively on Joe Rogan's podcast. Take a look. Over the last... 30 years, the top 1% have seen a $21 trillion increase in their wealth. The bottom half of America has seen a $900 billion decline in their wealth. Hmm. That's strange. No, that is insane. And that has got to end. Yeah, like, like what are the set of things that can be done to make the future better? Your point is that we have to, I think, as I understand what you're saying, we have to redefine what being a great nation is about. What if we dig a tunnel under LA, and then dig, and people, other people ask us to dig tunnels, and so we said yes in a few cases. Uh, you know, that really doesn't improve people's well-being. Yeah, well, they hold the ground all the time. I don't think that that's terribly important. Hold the ground is better than no hold the ground. What are you talking about? What about like a little tiny underground spaceship, basically? I don't want to become a science fiction. I could put video games in it. You don't have to do any of that. I mean, the more likes can do this, like, ballet thing to the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. That doesn't do anything. We should do a flamethrower. That is insane. It makes sense, though. Look, here's the bottom line on this thing. Flamethrower. You are uh, the wealthiest guy in America worth about $150 billion. That's true. And you pay very, very little in federal income taxes. Yeah. But, like, uh, you know, my goal is, like, try to do useful things. Uh, you certainly don't do it by tweeting every day. I mean, it's way easier to be mean on social media than it is to be mean in person. Mm. You know what's great is that we're seeing a growth in the number of billionaires in America. Isn't that terrific? And we got one guy who's worth $155 billion. How great. Oh, by the way, you see the yacht that that billionaire has? You know, it's three miles long. Isn't that great? <clears throat> you know, I, I do basically, I think people that don't totally understand what I do with my time. How many Americans actually believe that we should give tax breaks to billionaires and cut Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Very few. The, I mean, I think a Tesla is the most fun thing you could possibly buy ever. Bitch, you can go out and get a job at McDonald's with the minimum wage and go bankrupt because of medical bills we can't pay. Pay taxes. Well, that's what I want you to do right now. Now that 
No, yes, definitely not. Again, I'm not showing you the whole video here. The whole video is at least a, a minute longer. So go check it out. I'll leave it in the video description box. This guy deserves all the views he can get. It's at, I think when I saw it, it was at like 83, 85,000, something like that. We got to get this thing over a million. It kind of blew up even more on Twitter, which is where I originally saw it. But go give Justin T. Brown a view and, uh, and, a, and a sub. Uh, this is brilliant. I love this stuff, man. And it's hilarious. Uh, Elon Musk was just on Twitter and, uh, the other day, and he said, let's return to the roaring 20s. Carry the six. You do know what happened in 1929, right? And then you do know what happened after that. This little thing called the Great Depression. I mean, the Roaring Twenties generally understood to be a colossal bubble. You had uh, low taxes on the wealthy. You had deregulation. Who was it? I believe it was Herbert Hoover who ushered in those same policies. By the way, later on, those same policies embraced by Ronald Reagan. There was a great recession right after him. There was the great recession after George W. Bush implemented those same policies. By the way, Clinton also helped with deregulation as well with the Graham Leach Bliley Act, which repealed Glass-Steagall, which was the separation uh, between commercial banking and investment banking. They got rid of that. And every time in history you do this, where you do massive deregulation for uh, financial institutions and you cut taxes on the rich, you have what's called a boom-bust cycle. And that's exactly what we have in the 1920s. So this idea that it was like, oh, it was so glorious. No, the whole point of the Roaring Twenties is at the time people felt like, or some people felt like, oh my God, it's so glorious. There was incredible income and wealth inequality at that time as well. But it was fake. That was the whole point. I mean, did you miss this part of history class? So, look, I mean, you, you get the essence of both Elon Musk and Bernie Sanders in that back and forth. You get, you know, Elon's talking about a flamethrower and video games and AI and robots and digging a tunnel underneath L.A. or whatever. And you got Bernie Sanders who's like, hey, income and wealth inequality, um, totally rigged and unfair system, totally corrupt elite establishment that's not looking out for working people. And that really does capture the essence of both of these guys. And Elon Musk, even since being on the Rogan podcast, this one, you know, these clips are from a while back, um, he's gone even harder in like a, I want to say an Ayn Rand direction, but it's not even Ayn Rand because Ayn Rand was against all forms of government welfare, at least in theory, whereas even though she took like Social Security and stuff like that, even though she was against Social Security, um, but... Elon Musk took $4.9 billion in a government subsidy, and that helped him with his businesses. So, you know, he's out there uh, talking up the virtues of, of small government. Meanwhile, he's swimming in subsidy money. But, you know, forgive me if I don't have much sympathy for a guy who made $39 billion in one day. Uh, Tesla market cap was at one point over a trillion dollars, and he's crying about taxes on Twitter. If anybody should be taxed more, dude, it's you. And he's not even being totally forthright with all of his taxes. Like, again, one of the other things he tweeted the other day was like, just in case you're wondering, I paid like $12 billion in taxes. Uh, ProPublica did an investigation that showed what's called the true tax rate of billionaires. So in other words, just the income that they get and then the tax on that income, it's the total 
growth of net worth and then what percentage of taxes they pay relative to that. And he only paid like three point something percent in taxes for real. And then also that was before he learned about the scheme, what's called buy, borrow, die. So in other words, you uh, instead of taking money out of your company to live on, what he does is he leaves it in the company and he borrows from a bank against his stock. So when you do that, you don't have to pay any taxes at all. And in fact, there was at least a year where you paid no taxes at all. So, you know, it's just amazing to me that here you have a guy who's trying to claim to the world that he's some sort of victim of high taxes. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I don't like the fact that when Elon or anybody pays taxes, what does it usually go to in the United States of America? You guys know this. It usually goes to endless war. I mean, we have a, a military budget over a 10-year period, which is 7 to $8 trillion. Like, that's what the money's going towards. It's going towards endless war. It's going towards Wall Street bailouts. So I understand people who say, hey, man, at least spend my money on, on good stuff. I get that, and I completely agree with that. I'd rather have that money go towards health care and education and paid vacation time and things of that nature. Uh, but the fact of the matter is when you have extreme wealth, by its very nature, it corrupts democracy. Because when you have a small number of people who become so wealthy and powerful, they ultimately can buy the government through campaign contributions. And they can craft policy to serve their own interests and their needs versus the needs of the working class. And so there's an argument, even like taxes going towards stuff aside, there's an argument to curb the excesses of extreme wealth. In fact, I think it's a phenomenally solid argument and it's a correct argument. So... um, There you have it. Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan, Elon Musk on Joe Rogan, Justin T. Brown. What a phenomenal job he did with this. A lot of creative people out there, man. A lot of creative people doing a lot of of great work. So well done. I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as I did. Okay. Next. Oh, this one is fun. This one is fun. CNN, every year, they do their New Year's Eve special, where you get these uh, annoying elites get absolutely hammered together, and then they, uh, they go out there and make fools of themselves. You know, I think that they think people are laughing along with them, and maybe some percentage are, but really we're more laughing at them. Um, they're incredibly out of touch. There was a thing that went viral of like um, Anderson Cooper and Andy Cohen, is that his name? Where they were like ripping de Blasio or Andy Cohen was at least. And it's like, I don't like Bill de Blasio either, but there was no substance in Andy Cohen ripping de Blasio. It was just like incredibly vague and, and pointless with the specifics of his criticism. And uh, you got Don Lemon who was drunk and talking about dicks. I saw some headline like that on media. I, this is what goes on. Um, well, turns out some very astute Twitter users decided to get in on the fun, and CNN was trolled to perfection. Take a look at this. So Brian Breaker says the following. Shout out to, to the CNN producers who highlighted tweets from Mike Oxlong, Mike Oxlong, Bonaire, Bonaire, Boner, and Ben Dover tonight. You are the real heroes, and then you can see at the bottom there. Mike Oxlong, for those of you who are slow. Mike Oxlong is what that's supposed to say. Ben Dover, that one's obvious. Bonaire is boner, of course. 
Um, but there was actually more. Hold on. I actually made the list. Oh, I love these. Dixie Normus. So it's D-I-X-I-E space N-O-R-M-U-S. And if you read it fast, Dixinormus. 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 Forgive me for those of you who aren't slow. I'm spelling it out for the slow people, including myself. Harry Cox. Harry Cox. Harry Cox. Uh, like I said, Mike Oxlong. Seymour Butts, that's a classic. Ben Dover was a classic. This one is phenomenal. And I never heard, heard this one before. Anita Dump. Anita space dump. Anita Dump. I need a dump. Absolutely brilliant. So somebody made a great point about this. This is supposed to be the number one name in news. Now, I get it. It's New Year's Eve. It's supposed to be a fun night and all that stuff. Well, what does this say about their vetting process, about the producers? What does it say? And by the way, I think the accounts were like mass banned as soon as people realized what happened. So, but what does this say about the people in, who make the decision to put these uh, things up on screen, to put these tweets up on screen? Look, either they're in on the joke and they're having fun too and they secretly like dislike CNN. That's very possible. Or they're like they are in every other respect where it's just they're not actually good at news and information. And the other thing is, look, maybe this is unfair. You guys tell me. But it, if these are the tweets that they picked out among however many tweets they were getting, it actually tells me, hey, maybe there weren't that many tweets rolling in. And maybe there weren't that many people watching CNN, or at the very least watching CNN who are actually engaged with what's happening on screen. To which I say, of course. Because really, I mean, they're force-fed to everybody, guys. That's the whole point of mainstream media. Where do you normally see CNN on TV or, or uh, MSNBC? It's like if you're at the barber or you're at, you know, an airport or you're somewhere where nobody's watching the screen. And so it's just kind of background noise. Nobody, people haven't built these deep connections with these CNN hosts. They're not, they don't seek out the opinion of the likes of Wolf Blitzer. He just sort of exists and says really boring things and is force-fed to everybody. It's the point I've made a million times. If you had the old algorithm on YouTube, the more meritocratic algorithm, and you put Wolf Blitzer on there in the news and politics category, how many people would have organically flocked to his channel? Would he have ever broken 10,000 subscribers? The answer is no. And I think everybody knows that. And so I think one of the reasons why these things made it on screen is because there weren't that many people who were actually tweeting and engaged with CNN on the New Year's Eve shit. Because who would do that? Who would, like, is that how you want to spend your New Year's Eve? Watching some elite goons say things that are totally not relatable? So you had people trolling them. And I think that's glorious. And credit to these people. I think it's uh, very creative. I like the creativity that was involved with this. Anita Dump, Ben Dover, Dixie Normus, Harry Cox, Hugh Jass. Did I tell you Hugh Jass one? Hugh Jass is hilarious too. Hugh, H-U-G-H space J-A-S-S. Hugh Jass. Come on, man. Mike Oxlong and Seymour Butts. Uh, I've often used this phrase before, but this time I think it's being used in the most proper context. This is CNN being trolled to perfection. 
Okay. Let's keep it going. Hillary Clinton. Here we go. Hillary Clinton. Oh, wait. I have some notes for this one as well that I should probably pull up. Here we go. Hillary Clinton did an interview with MSNBC. If you notice something, she's slowly but surely coming out of hiding. Speculation is because now she's actually interested in a 2024 run because you see Mayor Pete and Kamala Harris on deck to be next in line. And they're just as unpopular, if not more unpopular, than Hillary Clinton. So she's sort of sneaking around behind the scenes and making some moves. And I think she's probably considering running again. I really do. Uh, whether it's 2024 or 2028, um, I think that's what's going on in her mind. But anyway, so one of the questions she was asked about was uh, Democrats and how they're doing and what mistakes they're making. And you will not be surprised to learn that Hillary is already blaming the left for future Democratic losses. a time for uh, some, you know, careful thinking about what wins elections and not just in deep blue districts where a Democrat and a liberal Democrat or so-called progressive Democrat is going to win. First of all, we don't know what the state of the map is going to be after all of the redistricting. It appears as though the Republicans in a number of states are doing their best to eliminate um, as many seats that Democrats can be uh, competitive in. Uh, and so we've got to be very clear-eyed about what it's going to take to hold the House and the Senate in 2022. I understand why people want to argue for their priorities. That's what they believe they were elected to do. But at the end of the day, nothing is going to get done if you don't have a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate. And our majority comes from people who win in much more difficult districts. And our majority in the Senate comes from people who can win in not just blue states and hold those wins, as we saw didn't happen in Virginia, um, but can win in uh, more purplish uh, states. So, look, I'm all about um, having vigorous debate. I think it's, it's good, and it, it gives people a, a chance to be part of the process. But at the end of the day, it means nothing if we don't have a Congress that will get things done and we don't have a White House that we can count on to be sane and sober and stable and productive. So let's break this down. She says, nothing is going to get done if you don't have a Democratic majority. And then she goes on to say, and the people who win in the red-leaning districts are, you know, more conservative Democrats. That's effectively her argument. Well, it, it's wrong from the beginning, because she says nothing is going to get done if you don't have a Democratic majority. Um, we have a Democratic majority right now, and nothing's getting done. So apparently nothing gets done even with a Democratic majority, Hillary. Look at Joe Manchin. Look at what he just did to build back better. Look at Kirsten Cinema. Look at what they just did. So you can't argue something got done. Nothing got done. So really, the reality is nothing is going to get done unless you have a Democratic supermajority 
And on top of it being a Democratic supermajority, you need to have non-Republican Democrats. So you can't have the Blue Dog Democrats. You can't have the Joe Manchins. You can't have the Kirsten Cinemas. And by the way, how do I know this? Again, this is not speculation. This is also borne out by the evidence and history. It was Barack Obama who had a supermajority. And we didn't get a public option for health care. We didn't get single payer for health care. We got a Republican idea, the idea of an individual mandate system, the Affordable Care Act. That's what Obamacare is. So she's wrong in multiple ways. She says, look, you can't get anything done if you don't have a Democratic majority. No, apparently even with a Democratic majority, you can't get anything done. The evidence is right in front of our faces. The only way you'll get anything done is with a Democratic supermajority, and you can't have any Republican Democrats. You can't have any dinos, Democrats in name only. So, I mean, it's just amazing to me that she makes that argument. But the fact of the matter is, guys, I don't think she cares if anything specifically gets done. I think she just wants the Democrats to have power, and I think she wants her to have power. So it's not about, like, oh, it's not about the idea that we need to get stuff done. It's about, hey, give us power, let us hold on to power. And it's because, on top of being corrupt, she also has this worldview, a very black and white worldview. The idea is Trump and the Republicans are bad. Well, at least Trump-aligned Republicans are bad. And um, Democrats are good. The specifics, the details, the policy positions, the theory of governance is irrelevant. Just give us the power. And if we want to do nothing with it, let us do nothing with it. And then we'll bash the left and gaslight the left as if it's their fault. But beyond that, look, that argument is just incorrect. So if Hillary was right, Claire McCaskill would have won. She would have beat Josh Hawley. Claire McCaskill didn't. Claire McCaskill is the exact kind of Democrat that Hillary Clinton says we need. You know, you need basically a Republican light Democrat. You need a conservative Democrat in these areas. Well, then why didn't Claire McCaskill win it? And in fact, in some ways, Josh Hawley ran to Claire McCaskill's left. Now, Josh Hawley governs like a standard establishment Republican, but when he ran, he was trying to portray himself as somewhat populist, and he was able to beat a non-populist Democrat. That's Claire McCaskill. Uh, if she was right, Mark Pryor would still be in office. Mark Pryor, I think he was from Arkansas, a Democratic senator, very conservative. He got his clock cleaned. He got destroyed. If Hillary was right, Joe Donnelly would still be in office. Joe Donnelly is a Democratic senator from Indiana, and he ran a campaign where he was like, I'm basically a Republican. He was praising Ronald Reagan in his ads, going after the left in his ads, and he got beat by an actual Republican. Now, by the way, the best comparison ever in the same election cycle, I believe it was 2018, you had Joe Donnelly, a Republican Democrat, lose in Indiana, the state right next door is Ohio. Ohio is now just a red state. They're like a R plus six or plus 10 state. But Sherrod Brown's a Democratic senator and he won in Ohio. How? Because he was further to the left. He was more unapologetically left-leaning. He's pro-worker, he's pro-union. In some ways he's great. He has his flaws, he has his downsides, he's anti-Medicare for all. So I'm not, I'm not going over the top with my praise of the guy here. Just point is, he's not Joe Donnelly. He's a lot better than Joe Donnelly, and Sherrod Brown won. So really, if anything, all the evidence points in the other direction. If Hillary was right about, this is the kind of Democrats you need to win, why isn't Evan Bayh still in office? He got destroyed. He's the exact kind of Democrat that Hillary thinks Democrats need to win, and he lost. What about Doug Jones in Alabama? He was trying to be as Republican as Republican can be, and he lost. What about uh, Dan Lipinski? He lost. What about Max Rose? They lost. Blue Dog Democrats get obliterated. Because when you run for office and you say, I'm a lot like my opponent who I don't like, people go, okay. 
And what happens is the base for the Republicans turns out, and your base is like, why would I vote for you? You're telling me you're a Republican. So she's just wrong in every respect. The, the strongest piece of evidence for our position on this is that every Democrat who ran on Medicare for All won re-election. Even in swing districts, pro-Medicare for All Democrats were 23 for 23. Now, again, this is where Hillary says, well, that's in a lot of deep blue districts. No, a lot of those districts were swing districts. I don't remember the exact number. It was like 11 or something like that. But Katie Porter, for example, ran on Medicare for All and won re-election. That was a purple district. So all of the evidence cuts in the other direction. If you are, if you go all in on economic leftism, if you argue for Medicare for all and free college and abolishing student loan debt and paid vacation time and paid maternity leave and throw in the child tax credit, which was a crucial part of Build Back Better, if you run on helping working people by having a government that works for them and not against them, you're going to win. Now, yes, in some respects, I'm critical of lefty messaging, defund the police, for example. I think the polls are clear on that. It's 18% support in the country. You're not going to win an election on that unless it's a very specific district, like Cori Bush kind of ran on that and ended up winning. But she's the only one who really ran on defund the police, and now somehow defund the police getting blamed for Democratic losses all over the country, which makes absolutely no sense. But they don't have a real argument. Hillary doesn't have a real argument. They just have, uh, you know, lazy assumptions, and she's working backwards from her priors. And look, they're stuck in the early 1990s. Bill Clinton ran as a, what's called a new Democrat. And he did this thing called triangulation. He said, look, I'm not with the Republicans, but I'm also not with the Democrats. I'm above the fray. I try to pick the best aspects of both of them. And that's how I run. And that's how I govern. That was Bill Clinton's approach to politics. You had the DLC, the Democratic Democratic Leadership Counselor Committee, which was when the Democrats decided we're not just going to take union money and teacher money and lawyer money anymore. We're going to take uh, money from corporations. That was the destruction and the neoliberal rot within the Democratic Party, which led to where it is right now. And she still has this mindset as if it's 1992 or 1996. It's not 1992. It's not 1996. Since then, we've had George W. Bush. The country definitely would have elected another FDR after George W. Bush. In fact, some people thought they did with Barack Obama and said, we got Bill Clinton 2.0. So I was incredibly underwhelming. Then you had Donald Trump. Then you had Joe Biden. People are screaming for change. If they don't go actual populist left, they're going to go fake populist right again, and that's incredibly dangerous. So Trump would be the favorite right now for the next election, and that's a terrifying thought. You're never going to defeat Trump with milquetoast neoliberalism. It's not going to work in the long run. There's no way, and we just got a taste of that with what happened in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe ran on Trump is bad and followed Yunkin down every culture war rabbit hole. You're going to get obliterated that way. You have to actually stand for something and do something that helps working people. You know, funny enough, the real model for victories moving forward is not from the 1990s. You go all the way back to the 1930s, because that, my friends, is a lot more analogous to where we are right now, with the incredible income and wealth inequality, the fact that society and civilization seems to be coming apart at the seams. It's a lot more analogous to, you know, the 1929 stock market crash, the, um, the Great Depression, we're in times that are a lot more like that. And desperate times call for desperate measures, calls for a bold leader, calls for at least a new New Deal type approach. But she cannot 
make that argument, and she cannot take that position, because that's the, fundamentally the opposite of who and what she is. And, of course, she's concerned with her variety and brand and ilk of Democrat maintaining power. But you guys show us what you do with power. And it's just minor tweaks around the edges, if that. And so there's a real hatred of elites and our institutions bubbling in this country. And people are correct to feel that way. And you're never going to micromanage and technocrat your way out of that. It requires bold action, bold policy, and it's just not something Hillary Clinton is willing to do. So stop and think about it. She's already blaming the left for future corporate Democrat losses. It doesn't matter what the question is, doesn't matter what the facts of the situation are, they will always blame the left. They're doing it right now. We're watching it in real time. But again, 23 of 23 Democrats who ran on Medicare for All won. You know who lost? The blue dog Democrats, the right-wing Democrats. Claire McCaskill, Mark Pryor, Joe Donnelly, Evan Bayh, Doug Jones, Dan Lipinski, Max Rose. All the evidence points in our direction. Just don't be totally insane on social issues and go all in on economic leftism and just avoid the scary buzzwords to Americans like socialism or whatever, and you will win. You will win. Bernie Sanders really showed us the way in this sense. Everybody knows what happened in 2016. Everybody knows the DNC put their finger on the scale in favor of Hillary and against Bernie. The WikiLeaks emails prove that. There's a reason why Bernie would have won became a big thing. Because Bernie would have won, at the very least, in 2016. He made some changes to his campaign in 2020. probably was for the worse. He also wasn't aggressive enough in some respects. wasn't strategic enough in some respects. Fair enough. There are criticisms there. But when you looked at the polling in 2016, if Bernie had gone through that primary, we wouldn't have had a President Donald Trump. We wouldn't have had one. And she still does not understand that or acknowledge that. And that's pathetic. Even with all of her biases taken into consideration, she should be honest enough to acknowledge Bernie would have won in 2016. So there we go, already blaming the left. They're never going to not blame you. So speak up, be direct, give the evidence, give the data, make your points, because it's never been more clear. She's totally wrong. Even with a Democratic majority, we get nothing done if the Democrats are just Republicans. Joe Manchin, I went back and looked at the 538 numbers. They have this thing, how much, what percentage of the time do you vote with Trump? Joe Manchin, in the era of Trump, voted 50% with him. And there was even one year where he voted 60% with Donald Trump. The response to that needs to be, no, no, we're from the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. So we're going to actually represent our interests. Hillary Clinton could argue all she wants for being half a Republican, but at least own that fact. Say, so you're, you're the dino. You're not the real Democrat. You're the one who's in favor of barely inching forward in the right direction at all or just maintaining the status quo. That's not a popular position. That's for damn sure. And um, they have one play in the playbook, and they're always going to go back to it. Blame the left, blame the left, blame the left. It's time for the left to assert itself because what I'm interested in and what we're interested in is actually solving the real problems that we have in this world right now. we got to stop, you know, apocalyptic climate change from getting out of control, of which it already is. We need something like a Green New Deal. We have to raise taxes on the wealthy and redistribute that wealth in the form of student loan debt elimination, free college, 
uh, universal health care, things of that nature. We need paid vacation time by law. We need the PRO Act, which gives us more workers will be in unions, which means more workers are protected. We need the uh, minimum wage to be a living wage. We've got to end more of the wars. We've got to stop the starvation of people in Afghanistan, which Biden is doing right now through sanctions. There's all these things we've got to do. We are serious about that stuff, not just about posturing like Hillary Clinton is and, you know, acting like she's above it all and she's the queen of everything. And if only she was elected, she would fix everything by doing what? Notice, there's no, there's not even any specifics there. It's Republicans bad, Donald Trump bad. Okay, fair enough, go on. And me good. That's it. Okay, well, that doesn't, none of that means anything. That doesn't mean anything. What are you actually going to do with power? Well, we know. Because you're defending the system as it works right now. So you're defending the system that ultimately has Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema block any direct movement in the right direction. That's what you're doing. People see that right now, and they don't like it. We got your exact theory of governance with Joe Biden in power, and it's abysmal. It failed, which is why his approval rating is down in the dumps. Acknowledge that. Stop blaming the left. Stop pointing fingers at the left. People see through this nonsense. Time for a sea change. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Marjorie Taylor Greene permanently banned from Twitter. Stay right there, y'all. We'll be right back.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back to the show. Um, let's talk about a not-so-good story here. Support for political violence has absolutely skyrocketed. This is interesting. Take a look from Axios. About one in three Americans believes that violence against the government can at times be justified. A year out from the deadly January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, a poll by the Washington Post and the University of Maryland uh, found out Saturday. It's the largest share of respondents to hold that view in similar polls in the last two decades, according to the Post which said the findings offer a window into the country's psyche at a tumultuous period in American history. It comes after last year's insurrection, the rise of Trump's election claims as as an energizing force for the right, deepening fissures over the government's role in combating the pandemic, and mounting racial justice protests sparked by police killings of black Americans, writes the Post. A majority of adults still say violence is never justified, but that number... 62% is a new low per the post. Some 90% believed it was never justified in the 1990s. Wow. Used to be 90%. Now it's 62%. The new poll found that 40% of Republicans and 41% of independents said violence can be acceptable compared with just 23%. That's still a high number of Democrats. 40% of white Americans said violence can be justified compared with 18% of black Americans. The percentage of adults who said violence is justified was 23% in 2015 and 16% in 2010 in polls by CBS News and the New York Times, respectively. People's reasoning for what they considered acceptable violence against the government varies from what they considered to be overreaching coronavirus restrictions, the disenfranchisement of minority voters, to the oppression of Americans, the Post writes, And then that last line is the most interesting to me. uh, Responses to an open-ended question on the survey about hypothetical justifications, including repeated mentions of autocracy, tyranny, corruption, and loss of freedoms. Wow. So when when they ask people in an open-ended sense, seriously, when do you think violence would be justified? People said, when, when it's an autocracy and no longer a democracy, when it's a tyranny and no longer a democracy, when there's endless corruption and when there's a loss of freedom. This is hitting a little too close to home, isn't it? Again, I'm floored by that fact. Well, not really, but this is really the chickens coming home to roost in many respects. But it used to be 90% that political, said political violence is never acceptable. Now it's only 62%. This is, or it should be, but it won't be, a wake-up call to the elites. A wake-up call to the powers that be. They're in their ivory towers looking down at everybody else. They do not understand the pain, the hurt, the suffering the complete institutional collapse and failure. Americans feel completely left behind by their government. They know the government doesn't represent them in any way, shape, or form. By the way, we know this as a matter of fact because every time they do a poll on Congress, the approval rating varies between like 
8% and 23%. This is supposed to be the body that represents us. That is our voice when it comes to governing the country. They clearly do not do that. Everybody knows you're always voting for a lesser of two evils. And that's why everybody hates Congress. I mean, look at that fact, for real. 8% and 23% approval rating for Congress. It's a shock that this number is not even higher, the number of people who believe in political violence. Only 62% are opposed to it now. And, you know, maybe some of you at the beginning of this segment thought, oh, well, it was just, you know, it's just the, the Trump people who are saying we believe in political violence. No. It's also people who feel like the cops are out of control and the war on drugs is out of control and there's institutional political violence against people of color and poor people. It's also people who say, look, they're restricting our right to vote. You had the Supreme Court not too long ago slap down aspects of the Voting Rights Act and then all these red states went right back to the same tricks they used to do in the freaking 1960s trying to disenfranchise minority voters. It's not just right-wingers. When, what was it, 40%, 41% of independents say it? There are plenty of left-leaning independents who say it. And then, again, when you ask people more specifically, they say, when it feels tyrannical, or it feels like we're in an autocracy, or we're losing our freedoms, or there's tyranny, or there's, excuse me, corruption, maybe it is justified at that point in time. Maybe violence is okay at that point in time. Now, look, this gets into a much broader conversation about the idea of political violence. And when is it acceptable? When is it not acceptable? Is it ever acceptable? And that's way too complex a conversation to have in the context of this story right now. But just know the answers are not as black and white and clear as you may think they are. Now, I'm generally more of a proponent of the Martin Luther King uh, School of Change than I am the Malcolm X School of Change. And actually, that's not really fair because Malcolm X did stress self-defense more than any sort of offensive violence. But let's just say I'm more of the MLK school of thought than the riot school of thought, if you will. But you have to try to understand where riots come from. And even MLK himself said it's the language of the unheard or it's the voice of the unheard. When other means fail, people sort of resort to, all right, well, you guys are breaking the law relentlessly. Well, we can do it too. Watch. Um, and even Noam Chomsky, brilliant as he is. And look, he's an opponent of most offensive forms of violence. He very famously said Antifa is a giant gift to the right. Those are things I I agree with him on. But even he gives uh, an intellectual justification that I think makes perfect sense. He says, when is uh, violence justified? Well, let's say you have a shipment of tanks or airplanes or some sort of weaponry that you know is about to be used to massacre landless peasants in Vietnam. They're going to use napalm or Agent Orange or whatever, some sort of deadly weapons to massacre innocent peasants, landless peasants, villagers in Vietnam. You know it's about to be used in a genocidal act of war. And you don't see any people around, and you have the opportunity to destroy uh, this shipment of whatever it is, tanks, airplanes, weapons, do you destroy it? Well, he says, in that instance, that is absolutely justifiable, in this case, property damage, property violence. 
I have a hard time coming up with an argument against that. No individual is getting hurt, and you are at the very least postponing war crimes and a genocidal activity. In that instance, it is the ethical thing. It is the moral thing to do property violence. So now I could come up here and probably think up a a number of scenarios where uh, that kind of violence is justified, but generally speaking, I lean on the side of nonviolence, especially when it comes to people. I do believe in self-defense, though. You can always do violence as uh, a means to to protect yourself if somebody else is being offensively uh, aggressive and violent. But point is, it's a much more complex conversation, a nuanced conversation than anybody likes to give it credit for. And uh, I'm not going to flippantly, I'm not going to give some flippant commentary here that acts like it's never possible for violence to be okay. Because um, there's also institutional violence, which uh, in official circles, they don't count it as violence. How is it not a form of violence if um, 45,000 Americans die every year because they don't have basic health care? How is that not a form of violence? That's institutional violence. How is it not a form of violence and authoritarianism and oppression when the government locks you up for freely deciding to put a substance in your own body and you're not hurting anybody else. That is a form of violence. So there's institutional violence, which counts, but they don't count it in official circles. This is one of the biggest frustrations of the left. I mean, look at state violence. I mean, this is the best example of it. So when you have one terrorist put on a suicide vest and kill people, that's an act of terrorism. But if you have a U.S. drone bomb women and children and kill them, that doesn't count as terrorism. They say, that's well, that's collateral damage. We didn't mean to do it. We meant well, but we messed up and that happened. Well, if you do that a thousand times over, I have to question your intentions. And at the very least, you don't care that you're killing women and children. So how, how different is the moral culpability there? Why don't we call that terrorism? We need to call that terrorism. So... It's a much more nuanced conversation than people like to think. And again, the main point here is this is a wake-up call to elites, or it should be. Get your fucking act together. You know, FDR famously said something along the lines of, look, if we don't take some of your money, people are going to take all your money. So if we don't tax the wealthy and redistribute in the form of a jobs program and in the form of uh, various social safety net programs, it's going to get ugly. And what's crazy is they're so disconnected from reality, the elites, they have no idea. They have no idea. They don't know what the pain is like out there. They don't know what the suffering is like out there. They don't know that people are on the brink of complete and utter catastrophe and uh, economic failure and social failure and civilizational collapse. And so they're going along their merry way and um, oblivious to what's happening right underneath their noses. Well, at some point, this number might get to the point of no return. I think there are way too many good distractions for us to ever have like a a civil war in this country again, but I definitely think it's possible that we have widespread um, rioting and civilizational and institutional collapse and failure. And, you know, you just got a little taste of it with January 6th. You just got a little taste of it with the George Floyd uh, protests and riots in the wake of that. Imagine that happening all over the country over a variety of different reasons. Definitely possible. Definitely possible. And if they don't wake up and address the needs and concerns of the American people, it's going to get worse and worse. End the drug war. Um, 
legalize drugs, release all the nonviolent drug offenders. You have to do some sort of police reform. You have to um, address the material and economic concerns of the American people so that there is no need to scapegoat the other and you, you have xenophobia and bigotry drop instead of increase. When there's a chicken in every pot, you don't really need to blame other people for your problems because your problems aren't nearly as bad. So you need to give people health care. You need to, need to give people higher wages. You need to give people education. You need to abolish the student loan debt. Um, you need to do these things or it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. And the pandemic has just exacerbated all of these, all of these ills. And now, of course, there's that big split on pandemic restrictions. A lot of people are for them, and then a lot of people are against them, and um, they are inherently restrictive and authoritarian, regardless of whether or not you agree with them or not, and that's just adding fuel to the fire. So it's a scary thing, man. It is absolutely a scary thing, and we're living through history. Okay, next. One of the main things that the right likes to cloak themselves in is this idea of we are now the defenders of freedom of speech and a free press, and um, the left has abandoned those principles, and now they are more authoritarian. And you see this with you know, pink-haired kids on college campuses trying to shut down speakers they disagree with. And if you believe in freedom, you come with us. This is a line that you get from the right. Well, Candace Owens... Honestly, she didn't even realize she was doing it here. But because of a petty personal beef that she had, she came out and made a detailed and explicit argument as to why she thinks freedom of the press is bad and wrong, and she's opposed to it. I'm not kidding. Take a look. So Cardi B just was losing a debate and then just randomly tweeted out a doctored tweet of mine, like it, pretending it was a tweet that I had sent out, and doubling and tripling down and pretending that um, I had really, you know, that my husband had an affair with my brother. I don't even know the tweet. It was actually so ridiculous that it wasn't, but it got me so angry because it was just so petty and it was so small and, you know, it was just a demonstration of how ignorant she is, how unable she is to have a true debate about anything. And obviously this went viral and, you know, my lawyer sent out a letter to her lawyers and basically said, you know, we're going to sue you, and we're going to sue you in Georgia. And um, she basically said that she doesn't live in Atlanta full-time, and we'd have to sue her in New Jersey. It was this whole long back forth. And at, at the end of the day, you know, my lawyers, I'm still talking to them, but they basically said, as two public figures, you could sue her, and you will get a lot of headlines about it. But because of New York Times versus Sullivan, there's just so much protection for people to be able to lie, just to lie and pretend um, that it's the truth and they, there's no consequence. And it's one of the things that I have been the most passionate about, you know, New York Times versus Sullivan needing to be reversed, not because of a petty spat between Cardi B and Candace Owens, but because it's the reason that our country is so divided, because there are people that are quite literally subscribing to fake news all day, every day, believing that Donald Trump peed on hookers in Russia um, because they're watching what they deem to be legitimate news sources tell them that, because Rachel Maddow is telling them that. And then after two years of taking them down this rabbit hole, she goes, oh, never mind, none of it was real. It's problematic. And if journalists could be sued, if individuals could be sued for, you know, lying and smearing um, about public figures, then this wouldn't happen. 
they would just have to tell the truth. And I always say the United Kingdom is such a standard for that. Obviously, my husband is English, and every single time any publication in the UK writes anything false about me, I send out one letter, and they in instantly have to issue a retraction because they have true but defamation laws, and me being a public figure does not give them the permission to lie about me. I don't understand why America is the only country that has that standard that allows the press and allows public figures to be lied upon um, by any individual in the world. So, you know, we have that. We have one year to decide whether or not we're going to sue her. We have the lawyers in New Jersey that are kind of like, you know, that we've signed with. Um, it'll be a, a decision that I'm going to make probably in the new year. That's incredible. It's like a historical truism that a lot of these right-wingers who act like they're the biggest free speech warriors, they inevitably end up suing people over speech. Seen it a number of times, or threats of lawsuits. Donald Trump threatened to sue Bill Maher because Bill Maher made a joke comparing Trump to an orangutan. Sent a letter and everything. I mean... All right, so let me break this down for you so you explain just how insanely wrong she is and how she's taking the anti-free speech, anti-free press, authoritarian position on this. I totally disagree with her, completely. And I'm saying this as somebody who has been lied about relentlessly online. Any public figure, particularly in the political realm, has been lied about. Of course, of course. Okay, so New York Times versus Sullivan. It was a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that basically solidified freedom of the speech and freedom of speech and a free press. And so the idea is this. When it comes to defamation, there's a much higher standard for public figures. Specifically, it held that if a plaintiff in a defamation lawsuit is a public official or a person running for public office, not only must they prove the normal elements of defamation, so publication of a false defamatory statement to a third party, but they also must prove that the statement was made with, quote, actual malice, meaning the defendant either knew the statement was false or recklessly disregarded whether or not it was true. So in other words, if somebody goes out there and lies about me uh, or calls me all sorts of names or said I did something that I didn't do or whatever, I would need to prove not only that they did that, but that they actually thought it was true and they were maliciously doing it on purpose. So, but it, the problem with that is, of course, probably most of the time somebody comes after you, they actually really dislike you and they believe whatever the thing is that they're saying, or they're just trolling you and they're being sarcastic. They know it's not true, but they're just trying to get a rise out of you. So even if somebody says something that's provably, demonstrably, verifiably untrue, if they say, well, look, I heard it from this group of people over here, and there's the documentation that they said at first, and then I was just repeating the claim, that's enough to get them off. Because they thought, you know, it was real, and I don't like the guy, and so I'm repeating it. If they, if they genuinely think it's real, or if they're just trolling and they're being sarcastic, they're off the hook. And it should be that way. It absolutely, you want to clog up the courts with petty grievances like this? Again, if anybody has a reason to want to agree with the more authoritarian position here, it would be me. It would be any public figure, particularly in the political realm, because we get lied about all the time. All of us do. But look, grow a thicker skin. Like, that's what you got to do. 
Now, listen, I thought I had a thick skin. It turns out I don't. So what's my solution been? I just don't read the insane, over-the-top criticism. I don't read it because I know that'll take up my mental space and I'll think about it too much and I know it's untrue to begin with. So why would I even bother with that? But Candace Owens and a lot of these right-wingers are the ultimate snowflakes. Anybody says anything about them and they're like, they lose. I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you over this. Why? So, but wait, the specifics of uh, New York Times versus Sullivan are even more interesting. So before this decision, there were about $300 million in libel lawsuits from the southern states against news organizations who were in the north. And so what they would try to do is they would try to prevent any critical coverage of segregation and the officially racist laws that they had on the books back during those days. They would try to stop any news organizations from criticizing them by throwing a bunch of libel lawsuits and defamation lawsuits at those organizations. And so it was an attempt to stifle freedom of the press and basically say to them, hey, you better stop criticizing us. You better stop critiquing us. You better stop um, looking at us skeptically. You better stop printing these things that we don't like because we're going to ruin you financially if you keep doing it. And so the decision from the Supreme Court with this actual malice standards, it, it reduced the financial exposure from defamation claims and protected the media to do their job. And uh, eventually that strategy from southern states to just sue anybody who said negative things about them, uh, they were really no longer able to do it. The whole idea of it was let's try to suppress criticism. That was the whole point. And so does the UK system get it right? right? No, of course not. Look, I'll go a step further. Again, I'm taking the position that is the true left position and is the anti-authoritarian position here. But even hate speech, even hate speech, that's a category in a lot of European countries. It's not in the United States of America. The, the number of restrictions on freedom of speech in the U.S. are absolute minimal. I mean, you have as few restrictions on, on freedom of speech as possible in the United States of America. And that's correct. It should be that way. And by the way, she should be thanking her lucky stars that it's this way because conservatives say things all the time against lefties that are over the top and absurd and are lies and borderline defamatory. Remember when Trump ran in 2016 and he said Ted Cruz's dad was involved with killing JFK? So be careful what you wish for because if they actually had the standard that they say they want, they would get the pantsuit off of them over and over and over again. Now, again, I don't want that because I'm principled and I'm consistent. And I think it's the best case scenario for everybody. It's the least bad scenario for everybody if it's live and let live, say whatever you want. Yes, there are instances where things go too far, but it should be the standard should be incredibly high to prove libel, slander, defamation, you know, when it comes to the online rules that we talk about this all the time, targeted harassment is something you can get asked for, or doxing is something you can get asked for, direct threats of violence you can get asked for. But, at, but outside of that, it should be people say whatever the hell they want. And look, I think either Cardi B was trolling with the thing she said, which is allowed, or she saw the tweet from somebody else and thought it was real and then passed it on. It's one of those two things. 
So you're not going to be able to take her down. And by the way, what an absurd, the idea was, it was a tweet from Candace Owens that was fake, where it said her husband was cheating on her with her brother, and she asked to join them in like a threesome, and they said no. The overwhelming majority of people are going to look at that and giggle, because they know it's not true. Look, is it something Cardi B should have put out there? No, of course not. Of course not. Is it something we should have a freaking lawsuit over? No. No. The Supreme Court was 100% right with this. What she wants, what Candace Owens wants, is a precedent that would have made it so southern states could have continued to sue, sue northern media outlets and basically stifle any criticism of them. It would be terrible if we lived in a society where people get sued all the time for even giving an opinion about somebody that's harshly critical or even unfair. I mean, that would be terrible. Everybody would have to walk on XL 24-7 and never really speak their mind. And that's horrendous. That's horrendous. And, you know, media outlets, Jesus Christ. Again, conservatives should be thanking their lucky stars that the situation is like this because the number of times they say things that are provably, verifiably, demonstrably untrue or borderline defamatory or wrong, it's astronomical. So careful what you wish for, Candace. But, yeah, look, she did this video. It was all about, like, the 2021 year in review, and the whole thing was like, me! Me! Let's talk more about me! Nobody cares. Come on, nobody cares. You want to talk about issues? That's your, that's what's supposed to be what you do. Political commentator, right? But it was all, you know, about her. And this shows you, look, this shows you. It is all, none of it's abstract. None of it's theoretical. None of it's philosophical to Candace Owens or a lot of these right-wing commentators. It all comes down to what's convenient for me at this exact moment. So if she was getting sued for saying something fucked up about somebody else, all of a sudden she would flip and be like, free speech, free speech, free speech. But when Cardi B says something about her, it's, I'm against free speech. We need to reverse New York Times versus Sullivan and crack down on freedom of the press. Okay, but just own it. This is an authoritarian position. You're citing a place with way more restrictive speech laws as an ideal. So there's nothing different from Candace Owens and left authoritarians that she claim she's against all the time. You are taking that exact position. You're taking an authoritarian position from the right in her, in, in her case, but there are plenty of left authoritarians that want to police speech. You agree with policing speech. So don't tell me ever again that you're in favor of free speech or a free press. You are clearly not, and you're literally citing a Supreme Court case that helps solidify freedom of the press to say, I'm against that one. It's insane hypocrisy, and it's insane she doesn't realize what she's doing here. But honestly, I think she's not bright enough to even realize what she's doing here. So we are living through uh, an insane situation with the climate right now. Take a look at this. So uh, this is on Alaska weather. The Kodiak Tide Gauge Station recorded an amazing 67 degrees Fahrenheit yesterday. This is late December. This is a new statewide temperature record for December. The Kodiak Airport recorded 65 degrees. This broke their monthly record by 9 degrees Fahrenheit. And the weather balloon that was launched um, confirmed the readings. It was 67 degrees in southern Alaska in late December. 
Now, if you think this is a one-off, look at this. Saying December 2021, this is from Jim Cantori of the Weather Channel, has been a warm month in the eastern USA is an understatement to say the least. The number of warm records that were broken in December 2021 in the the east of the U.S., 8,983. Cold records, only 408. 8,983 warm records were broken in the eastern U.S. Only 408 cold records were broken. There were tornado warnings on New Year's Day in Tennessee and parts of Kentucky. And what everybody needs to understand is, as a general rule, January is a very stable weather month. You're supposed to be, like, solidly in the winter, and the temperatures are just generally cold. But we're seeing spring-like weather events in the middle of winter. So, in other words, you have cold fronts hitting warm fronts. You have moisture hitting dry air. You have all these conditions for unstable weather, and we're getting it in the middle of the winter. We're getting it on January 1st. This is unlike anything we've ever seen. I think we shattered the record, too, for um, the power of the December tornadoes that we had. That's something that was unprecedented. Now, some of this is uh, attributable to the La Nina season out west. And they're getting a whole bunch of snow in the northwest and rain in the west. And they had a severe drought going on. So in some ways, that's that's a positive thing that they're getting it. But without a doubt, as we're learning from all this new information that's coming in, we're seeing real climate change. And it's happening faster than anybody previously thought it would happen. And every time they go back and check this thing, scientists say it's worse than what we thought the worst case scenario was. They say, in fact, let me pull this up, because I I went through um, an article on this, and they had some incredible information. A study published last month in Nature Communications noted that as the Arctic continues to warm faster than the rest of the planet, evidence mounts, mounts that the region is experiencing unprecedented environmental change, with the hydrological cycle projected to intensify throughout the 21st century and increased evaporation from expanding open water areas and more precipitation, the paper projected the Arctic winters will experience more rain than snow sometime beginning in the 2060s. Do you understand that? The paper says sometime in the 2060s there will be more rain than snow in the Arctic in the Arctic. Again, I just told you, in late December, it was warmer in Alaska than it was in San Diego. What? Scientists also warn that the thawing of Arctic permafrost in the northern parts of the state constitutes a geological time bomb set to release potentially devastating quantities of methane, a super potent greenhouse gas, whose emissions are roughly 87 times more potent than carbon dioxide emissions over a 20-year period into the atmosphere. So at some point, the permafrost is going to be released into the atmosphere. That's 87 times more potent than carbon dioxide emissions. 
and it's already game, set, match. I mean, look, we used to talk about 400 parts per million. It's game, set, match. We get over 400 parts per million. We've been over 400 parts per million per, for a while now. This is really, really, really not good. And we're still talking about, we're still talking about um, not making a full transition to green and renewable technology. We're still hanging on to fossil fuels. The Democrats can't even get their shit together to pass even a watered-down version of a Green New Deal. On this front, it's hard not to be full 100% pessimist. Are we really going to be dependent on some mega genius somewhere coming up with a solution to somehow vacuum carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases out of the air? Is that what we're going to have to rely on? And what if we can't figure that out? What if we can't figure out some new technology which can help reverse the worst impact impacts of climate change? Look, we've talked about it a number of times. I actually think that the messaging on this has been wrong for a very long time from the media and from scientists because everybody, you know, talks about like, oh, sea level rise. Well, that's serious, of course. And some of the cities that are at sea level, it's like, okay, eventually, bye-bye, whether it's, you know, New Orleans is right, Miami, these are all cities that are in for some serious trouble and may eventually be wiped off the map. Um, But there are bigger things that can happen with climate change, which are even more devastating. For example, at, one, at some point, the Middle East becomes uninhabitable. And then you're going to have a great exodus from the Middle East. That's going to lead to a, a migration crisis in a variety of different places. That leads to instability. That leads to more systems failing because they can't handle the flow of migrants. Um, you're going to have increased famine and drought, again, Uh, you see the worst of people when they're hungry and they can't get food. That could easily lead to war. You could see wars over water, freshwater resources dwindling more and more and more. Eventually there will be wars over water. That's going to happen. That's going to be a thing. And right now we are the frog in the pot of boiling water. Like, we're going to be killed. It's getting us. But there's no one point where you realize, like, oh, my God, we need to do something. It's already too late. warmer in Alaska in late December than in San Diego. I've been in D.C. a lot, of course, for Crystal Kyle and friends. Um, It was unseasonably warm all the way until January 1st. And actually now you got more weird stuff happening. Right now, D.C. and Virginia are getting hammered with a snowstorm. I'm here in New York, and there's no snow and it's warmer. It's almost like the climate is changing. And with that, you get an increase in all sorts of extreme weather events. Because what the right-wingers like to do is say, oh, really? There's global warming? Then why is it cold? Well, you get, because it's not just about, that's why they stopped calling it global warming and started calling it climate change. It's really more that the climate changes and that you get an increase in all kinds of extreme weather events. And we're currently seeing that come to fruition. Um, But in the eastern U.S. so far for this winter, it has been way warmer, and that's why I showed you all the warm records being broken. But very strange stuff going on, man. Very strange stuff going on. Um, And now I believe it's more noticeable than it's ever been previously, and I think a lot of people are noticing it. I mean, I know people who are conservative-leaning who are even like, man, Climate change is definitely real, and there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on. Unfortunately, ExxonMobil and Chevron and the fossil fuel industry 
totally have bought and owned our, go our government. So that's why we can't get any movement in the right direction, uh, even though everybody recognizes that we're in a catastrophic situation. Okay. All right, let's move on to Fox News. Uh, video is fascinating. Did I miss my Marjorie Taylor Greene segment? I think I did. Did I skip over it by accident? I did. I did. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on at the end then. That's what I'll do. So Fox News um, is really going all in on this notion that student debt cancellation is an elitist policy. And you're seeing this argument parroted uh, in a number of places. And it's an absurd argument. So let me go ahead and show you this back and forth here from, I think this is a former George W. Bush speechwriter. Yeah, when he pretends to care about the working class, I'm sure it's sincere. You worked for George W. Bush, who was abysmal for the working class. But anyway, take a look and then I'll respond. on the idea of repaying student debt. It seems to me there are two key issues which is the majority of Americans do not have uh, four-year college degrees that so most people will be paying for their minority and some of these colleges have huge endowments. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, on the moratorium, this is going to fuel inflation and labor shortages because uh, it's a disincentive to work. So if you don't have to pay your student loans at all for the next six months, uh, then you are less likely to return to the workforce. And we are all paying for that because businesses can't afford, can't find workers to meet demand, and so prices are going up and there's shortages. So we're all paying for this moratorium uh, in higher prices and lack of goods on the store shelves. In terms of for outright forgiveness of these loans, only about 40% of Americans have four-year college educations, and most of them are white. Uh, about 60% do not go to college. So what AOC and the progressives are proposing is that working-class Americans who don't go to college subsidize the education of mostly white, middle-class Americans. How is that progressive? And, and in addition, there's about $1.6 trillion in, in student loan, uh, federal student loans. 50% of that is for graduate degrees. It's for master's degrees, it's PhDs, medical degrees, law degrees. So forgiving those loans is a massive wealth transfer from the working class to the educated elite. It, it, it's not progressive. It's not smart economics. It makes no sense, and we shouldn't do it. So then how do you explain the progressive push for this? Um, and I'll just read you what AOC said after the moratorium was announced and pushed back till May. She said, thank you. Next step, cancellation. So if, as you say, this is not a progressive idea at all, why? Why are they so behind it? It's a regressive idea. It's a regressive idea, and, and I have no idea why they're, why they're in favor of it. Uh, but, but also keep in mind, what about the people who are responsible? What about the people who didn't take on more, low, more uh, college debt than they, could, than they could afford? What about the people who saved for college and, or, or worked while they went to college part-time while working to pay off, or, or people who paid off their college loans? So you, you know, the question you have to ask yourself is, should your neighbor have to pay for your college education? Right? Yeah. Why should your neighbor, and especially if you're, if you're an educated person, why should your working class neighbor 
some of the you know the, the people who the tradespeople who come to your home and like and 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 work and work on your home and and provide you with these services, they should also be paying for your college education. Are you are, that, are you are we are we crazy? This is just jam packed full of terrible arguments. So let's start with he says at the end there. This is how you have to think about it. Should your neighbor have to pay for your college education? Now, that, of course, is designed to make the Fox News viewers go, no, of course not. That'd be absurd. Okay, let's continue with this thought experiment. Should your neighbor have to pay for you to go to high school? Should your neighbor have to pay for you to go to middle school? Should your neighbor have to pay for you to go to elementary school? Should your neighbor have to pay for you to go to kindergarten? That's exactly how it already works right now. And nobody says, it's absurd that we have to pay taxes that go to kindergarten and elementary school and middle school and high school. That's ridiculous. In fact, everybody looks at that and says, that's actually a pretty good system. Because we need people to go to school. If we just do private schooling, then only the wealthy kids are going to be able to go to school. Why don't we have our taxes go towards everybody being able to go to school? You know, free public education, free at the point of service. That's what it is. Why is it so absurd to say... You know, back in the day, all you needed was a high school degree, and then you could get a decent job. Okay, well, now you need a college degree, generally speaking, to get a a decent job. So why shouldn't everybody have the opportunity to get a free college as well? And if you're so passionate against this idea, okay, then you should also passionately be against the idea of free high school and free middle school and free elementary school and free pre-K or or free kindergarten. And now maybe we're talking about finally adding pre-K at some point, but that looks like it's sort of stuck at the moment. But if you're against one, it's the exact same thing in principle for high school, middle school, elementary school, and kindergarten. And these guys, they will not take that extra step. Why? Because then all of a sudden you realize, well, maybe they're the ones being ridiculous. Okay. um, Then they do this argument. Oh, I love this one. This is a doozy. What about the people who saved for college? And what about the people who basically already went through the system? What about them? This is unfair to them. That's like somebody who went through indentured servitude turning around and saying, well, I had to work my way through indentured servitude, so why shouldn't other people have to do it too? That's just the way the system works. That's not an argument for why we should continue to have bad policies. Some pe- I was the victim of a bad policy, so you should have to be a victim of a bad policy too. Or actually, none of you should have ever been victim of a bad policy. How about that? How about that? And by the way, this idea of like, well, you know, there are plenty of people who don't go to college and all that stuff. I would have no problem also giving people free trade school. In fact, I greatly favor that. But I'll even go a step further. If you want to take either the average or the median price, if we do full student loan debt cancellation and take that number and give every American who's not getting student loan debt canceled a check for that amount of money, totally fine with it. This way, everybody gets taken care of. Everybody gets a piece of the pie as they should. See, now you bring that up and they go, oh, no, no, terrible, bad idea, socialism. But wait, you said you were so concerned about the people who saved for college and already went through the system or the people who didn't go to college at all and you think this is unfair to them. Okay, well, here's a way to make it fair for them. We're going over, uh, overboard and overtime to make it fair for them. Well, then they would turn around and say, no, actually, I'm not in favor of any of that. Yeah, because you're just against any sort of social safety net programs and any sort of basic necessities being met by a government that in theory is supposed to work for us and do stuff with our money in our name. Um, then we have, there's a disincentive to work if you abolish the student, the student loan debt. There absolutely is not 
And this idea that it's going to elites in and of itself is not true. We just covered a poll. I think it was 89% of uh, people with student loan debts, with student loan debt, said uh, to pollsters, I'm not in a position where I can financially afford being able to pay for, pay back the student loan debt now. 89%, 89%. So nine out of 10 can't afford to go back to payments. Does that sound like it's a bunch of elites to you? Does that sound like it's all in the top 1% and they can all go uh, grab money from their rich grandma or their rich parents? I got news for you. People who have rich parents, generally their parents pay for college for them. So they don't need student loans. I mean, these are all obvious things, but look, they are propagandists. This guy's working backwards from his conclusion. Then he whines about, oh my God, a labor shortage. You want to fix the labor shortage? Pay Americans more. Pay them more. How many stories have we covered? There was a restaurant. There was a bar in this city or that city, and they weren't able to find people. And then, gosh golly, what do you know? They decided to pay $15 an hour, $20 an hour, instead of a measly $8 or $9 an hour, and boom, now they have uh, you know, more resumes than they know what to do with. Of course that's how it works. Of course. But they want about a labor shortage. What they really want is you to shut up, get back to work, for a starvation wage in the middle of a pandemic. That's what they want you to do. And they're barely trying to hide it. And then um, finally, they, they talk about most people going to college are white. And so the idea is, why would you want to subsidize? Why would you want people of color to subsidize white people? Now, I'll say up front, what happened, Fox News? I thought you guys were against playing identity politics. I thought you, you think identity politics are, are sectarian, and, you know, it's antithetical to this notion of colorblindness, and so identity politics is wrong and you shouldn't do it. Well, as soon as they think they have an argument that suits their end goals, all of a sudden they tried out the identity politics like nobody's business. It's the same. That's why they bring on black conservatives to bash other black people or gay conservatives to bash other gay people. This is the oldest trick in the book. So now all of a sudden identity politics are cool and good. Most people going to college are all white. It, the country is what? 70, 75% white? Of course most people going to college are going to be white. Is that an argument to uh, load people up with student loan debt, almost $2 trillion in student loan debt? Of course not. Of course, the fact of the matter is, I want to abolish all student loan debt. Every black person in this country, every Hispanic person, every Asian person, every white person, every, every person in this country should have their student loan debt abolished. And that helps the working class. And like I said, I'd also do free college. I'd do free trade school. It, I, I would easily take the median number for student loan debt elimination or the average number and then cut a check to Americans uh, who aren't getting the student loan debt elimination as well. I have no problem doing that at all. I mean, you guys know I do a UBI, for Christ's sake. I do a UBI. So all these arguments are just terrible. Every last one of them is just terrible. I don't care about the identity of who's going. I care that um, people are burdened with this unnecessary cost. And I've given you the, the countries on the show before. I don't have the list in front of me right now. But here, I'll, I'll actually pull it up because I just brought it up. I'm going to give you the countries that have free or nearly free college. Okay? Brazil. Brazil's universities charge a registration fee, but they do not require regular tuition. Uh, Germany 
Germany has 900 programs in English and is eager to attract foreign students to tuition-free universities. Um, Finland doesn't have tuition fees, but the government does warn foreigners they have to cover their own living expenses, so just room and board. France does charge tuition, but it's normally around $200 at a public university. That's what you pay in the U.S. is way above and beyond that. Norway, um, Norwegian students, including foreigners studying in the country, do not have to pay any college tuition. Slovenia, if Eastern Europe is your thing, uh, Slovenia has 150 English language programs and only charges a registration fee, no tuition. Sweden, um, over 300 English language programs and college is free but the cost of living might be pricey, so you gotta pay for your room and board. So there you go. You have Brazil, Germany, Finland, France, Norway, Slovenia, Sweden, uh, either free or near free. And in the US, we almost have $2 trillion in student loan debt. And by the way, the final point I'll make on this is, whatever happened to an argument from principle too? So you can talk about, oh, my God, the impact of this or that program or who, who it affects and who it doesn't and look at all the upsides and all the downsides. Whatever happened to an argument from principle? So in other words, as a matter of principle, I think our tax money should fund education, full stop. So when you're crafting a society, when you're creating a modern, civilized, industrial society, the question isn't are we going to have taxes or are we not going to have taxes? Of course we're going to have taxes. How much should people have to pay in taxes? What's the percentage? What's the rate? How do we structure it? And then what does that money go towards? What does it go for? I think any reasonable person would put on that list not only the obvious police, uh, infrastructure, things of that nature, but also universal health care, universal education, including higher education. It really is a system of control and domination that the wealthy have set up here. Because if you are up to your eyeballs in student loan debt, then first order of business when you get out there in the real world is I gotta get a high enough paying job where I can pay back that student loan debt. And maybe you settle. Maybe you settle for some bullshit financial job which pays more money so that you can pay off your student loan debt. And it's a way to sort of, it's a pipeline to traditional jobs. It's a pipeline to, in many instances, the financial sector of the economy where perhaps you can make more money, but what are you really doing for society? How are you really helping society? How are you really improving everybody's situation? This is something Chomsky talked about at length, that it's a system of domination and control to load people up with student loan debt. So when they get out in the real world, are they really free? I don't think you're not free in any meaningful sense if you think, first and foremost, I got to find a way to pay off this debt. If you really want to increase freedom and you really want to have the basic bare minimums met for a civilized society, one of the first things on the list is education for everybody. And again, don't tell me we can't do it. Other developed countries have found a way to do it. You can't on the one hand say, America, we're number one, we're the best. But on the other hand, say, we can't do this basic thing that other countries have figured out and something that we do all the way up to high school. So, God, I hate this Fox News news segment. Don't fall for the fake working class support BS, because they don't support the working class. Of course they don't support the working class. They argue for policies that would actively hurt the working class and cloak it as if they're helping the working class. It's complete garbage. 
Okay. Continue. So conservative elites are livid over Trump's iron grip on power in the GOP. So take a look at this. Raw story says, it's insane. Conservatives furious over Trump's hold on the GOP one year after insurrection. So this is from a longer article in Politico. At time of Capitol prayer service, um, January 6th, Trump will deliver remarks doubling down on the idea, the notion of the big lie, which of course uh, he says, well, he really won the election and it was just because of all this um, widespread voter fraud and rigging which made it so that he lost. Well, listen, there's been 60 court cases over this. And in those 60 court cases, I believe Trump lost every one but like one. And the one that he won was just over some procedural uh, nonsense. So it wasn't even, didn't hinge on, it didn't, nothing hinged on it. No outcome was changed as a result of it. Now then, of course, you have the Arizona audit and the Arizona audit uh, turns out Trump not only lost, but he lost by more than what the original number showed. So we've been over this. We've rehashed this a million times. You have Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, going out there with all these insane conspiracy theories and making a fool of himself on a regular basis. So, but here's what happened. What happened is Mitch McConnell and the Republicans, in the wake of what happened on January 6th, they had, a, they had something they could have done. What they could have done is, and I remember covering this at the time and screaming from the top of my lungs that this is the solution. All you had to do was effectively pass a law with a simple majority saying Donald Trump cannot become president again. So any, any uh, you know, attempt to impeach him, well, that doesn't really make much sense because he's not even going to be in office anymore. Any attempted criminal prosecution, I think, would have fallen short because there just wasn't enough evidence there to convict him of anything in particular. And he spoke out of both sides of his mouth and told the people to go home while also saying you're special people and I love you and it's great what you're doing. So the only way out of this was to pass a law to say Donald Trump is now banned from ever holding public office again in the United States. You could have done that. There was a method to do that. And it was relatively simple and straightforward to do it. But they didn't do it. And my guess is they thought, well, look, this was a bridge too far for, for the American people. And so at the time, his approval rating dropped quite a bit when that happened with Trump. But then it bounced back up soon thereafter. And so now we have a situation where they created a monster. And they don't know what to do with that monster. And the Republican Party is so immensely corrupt and bought by big business and is serving their interests relentlessly, that there's nobody within the Republican Party that can match the dynamic appeal of Trump to his own base. And so Trump now is able to still maintain an iron grip on Republicans solely through his culture war bullshit. So I think Chris Hedges, when we spoke to him recently on Crystal Kyle and Friends, check that out if you haven't yet, but I think Chris Hedges absolutely nailed it when he said, look, the way to think about Trump and his ardent supporters now is to think about a cult. Because the people who are still with Trump after he governed like a standard Republican, after he continued the status quo, 
they're just, it's more about the person. It's more about the individual. It's more about how he makes them feel. And so that's the thing that no Republican has the ability to break that spell. And anybody who even tries to dissent in any way, shape, or form sort of gets ostracized and ousted from the party. And it's amazing to me that these Republicans, who are massive cucks in public, will not speak out against Trump in public. Behind the scenes, they're like, God damn it, this guy's got an iron grip on power. Well, you helped build that. All you guys helped build that. Every last one of you helped build that. And now they created this monster and they don't know what to do with it. And my guess is, just like all, all the times this happened previously, the more insane stuff he says, whatever direction he wants to take the party, they will meekly follow along because they care more about their own careers and saving their own asses than they do about any sort of um, commitment to an ideology. And the fact of the matter is Trump serves that same corporatocracy as they do, so they just go right along with it. The difference is Trump actually has popularity and he has a cult appeal because of his personality and because of all the culture war stuff. And the other Republicans, they're so pathetic. They're trying so hard in some ways to get that attention and love and adoration from the base, and they just fall short. Look at Ted Cruz with all of his antics. Look at Dan Crenshaw. We'll get to a story on that later. But, I mean, there you have it. You have, on, on January 6th, the anniversary of the riot there, Trump is going to give a speech where he's like, um, I don't know what you're talking about. The election was stolen, and what happened there was a bunch of patriots were trying to take back their country. That's going to be the argument. That's going to be the argument. So, And with the Democrats effectively standing for nothing and not delivering materially for the American people in a long time, this guy with the cult can actually come back to power. And other Republicans are such giant cucks. They don't even speak out against it. And even if they try to publicly speak out against it, they would get crushed anyway. I think this really shows an institutional rot that is so deep that this is the best evidence I've ever seen for a, a deep institutional rot and skepticism of the powers that be in the way the system works now, that you have this guy who's an obvious charlatan, con man, and fraud, and he can basically say whatever the fuck he wants, and he's not going to drop in respect in the eyes of his hardcore base. And the other Republicans are like, I'd like to maybe do something to stop this, but I can't say anything publicly, so I'll just whine to political behind the scenes about it, and that's it, and hopefully I get credit for being anti-Trump, even though I won't say anything publicly, and even though he'll probably crush us all in the next primary and be president again. They could be as furious as they want behind the scenes, but if you didn't make actual power moves to prevent another Trump presidency, you're going to own it. Believe me, they would much rather have, the actual conservative elites would much rather have like a Mitt Romney type to become president. He's, he's much more predictable and he's going to serve the same corporations and he's not going to rile up the crazies nearly as much. So they would prefer that, but since they're massive cucks, Mitch McConnell and the rest of them didn't make any moves to block a Trump 2024 run, so here we are. We're stuck in Groundhog Day. And by the way, we may actually see either Trump versus Biden, the second run, or Trump versus Hillary, 
I may actually die from a massive heart attack or a stroke if that happens again. Okay. Speaking of Dan Crenshaw, so Dan Crenshaw is back in the news, even though nobody cares uh, about him or what he's doing. Uh, Mediaite says that he asked Fox News viewers to fund his over-the-top action movie-style campaign ad sequel. So this is a thing that he's done now a number of times. He did one for uh, the election in Georgia, and then he did one for something in Texas. Uh, I want to go ahead and show you the kind of ads that he does, and then we'll talk about what exactly he's doing here. Watch. American story is one of true exceptionalism, built on the greatest idea in history. This victory tonight is about you. It's about the finding of it. Sorry, folks. I'll be right back. What do we got? Well, it's not over in Georgia. Senator Rachel McDowell. What are we up against? You'll never believe this. Far-left activists are attempting to gain full and total control of the U.S. government. That we secure a, a Democratic Senate majority so that we don't have to negotiate in that way. Should these Senate seats be lost, all will be lost. You supported the Green New Deal. You supported Medicare for all. <laughs> Your mission will be to rally support across Georgia behind these American patriots, Senator Perdue and Senator Leffler. They must win. Our situation on the ground. We have two patriots down there, Senator Loeffler and Senator Perdue. They're great fighters with a great message. They just need a little backup. Last question. What do you want to bring? Bring everyone. I remember covering a story very recently, actually, within the past month. Uh, Dan Crenshaw took a shot at Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and uh, Lauren Boebert and some of the more loud, aggressive right-wingers who seem to be getting more press than him. And he tried to make the point that, like, these people are rhinos. They're Republicans in name only. You know who actually votes with Trump the most? Me and, like, Adam Kinzinger. And you wouldn't know it from the reaction of the base, but... That's the reality. So, like, these guys are just charlatans. They just want the spotlight. That's the only reason they're doing it. They're not really committed to the ideology or anything, bro. And what did I say in that segment? I said, look, I hate all the people he mentioned, and I hate him too, by the way, but understand something. He wants the spotlight too, and he's just jealous that they're getting more of it. And so he did this, this goofy-ass ad. By the way, how'd that work out? 
This was about the Georgia election with Purdue and, and Leffler versus Ossoff and uh, Warnock. And Ossoff and Warnock, Drax, them's clounced. They won. They won. So how'd that work out? But he did, it with, he did this one. He did another one with Texas. Just goofy Avenger style, like, look at me, Daddy and Mommy. I'm a superhero. I mean, he's doing the functional equivalent of like a five-year-old walking around the house wearing a little Batman uh, costume or Superman costume. And look, it's adorable when a five-year-old does it. It's not adorable when you're a grown-ass man and you're in Congress. And look, this is what he really cares about. He, he wants me, the spotlight on me. Don't you love me? Please let me be president one day. Please, Republican base, love me and accept me. Why are you snuggling up to Marjorie Taylor Greene instead of me? What about me? <laughs> so this, is, this guy, in his heart of hearts, he just wants to be famous. He just wants to be like an action hero. He just wants to be looked at as like a cool badass. And he falls way short. And so he does these goofy ads. And then the most egregious part, of course, is you're trying to raise money from small donors for this shit. Look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm too soft-hearted here. But I feel bad for those, whatever the Republican uh, viewers, the, the old right-wing viewers who are watching Fox News and who are getting pitched this. I feel bad for any grandma who's going and giving some of her Social Security check to this asshole to make a shitty ad, which is incredibly cringe. And again, maybe I'm wrong. Some people would say, oh, you know, they're suckers anyway, so they're marks and this was going to happen no matter what. But that shouldn't be the case, man. It shouldn't be the case. Crowdfunding for, to, to stroke your own ego with a shitty, cringe-ass, Avenger-style ad. Like, just be honest with yourself. This is what you really care about. This guy, look, he is, his voting record is right-wing. He is... He believes in that stuff. I, I really do think that about Dan Crenshaw. But he's wrong about, like, all of it. And ultimately, that's secondary to his own narcissism, self-aggrandizement. Look, if I was a politician, never in a million years would I do an ad like that. Why? Because I actually care about the issues and about working people. And so it, my ads would be all substantive. I'd be like, listen, vote for me. I'm going to do everything I can to legalize marijuana. I'm going to do everything I can to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. I'm going to do everything I can to have the PRO Act, which is pro-union legislation, which will help working people all across this country, maybe even more than a living wage. I'm going to uh, end the wars. I'm going to do universal health care. I'm going to do free college. I'm going to abolish student loan debt. I will do every single thing in my power that I possibly can, in whatever position it may be, Congress, Senate, President, whatever, to get these things done. I'm not running for me. I'm running to be a voice for you. I'm just a medium for what the American people want. We live in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. You know what that means? On all the issues that are constitutional, those are off the table. Nobody's coming to take away your rights. Nobody's coming to take away your free speech. That's set in stone. That's the whole idea. But on everything that's not a constitutional issue, your voice needs to be the deciding factor. You are your own boss. That's the whole point of a representative democracy. So I'm not running for me. I'm running to be a voice for you. That's what I would say. That's what I would talk about because that matters. Doesn't, you stroking your own ego and pretending to be a superhero doesn't matter. It just exposes you for what you are. Jesus Christ, what a charlatan. Imagine of all the, of all the things to raise, to give money to, of all the causes, let me act out my childish superhero fantasies again, please. 
by the way, the fact of the matter is, yeah, he's right that Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates, those people do have the heart of the base much more. They do. And you know what? I'm actually kind of happy about that. Because at least when they do it, it's not nearly as desperate. You get the idea that, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene is just sort of dumb. And she's just sort of loud. Loud and dumb. Loud and dumb and saying things that a certain percentage of the population wants to hear, and it's the craziest portion of the population. But there's something more genuine about that than there is about this douchebag. And so, in a way, I'm happy that he's secretly fuming at night every time he puts his head down on his pillow because he wants that acceptance so much, uh, but he's done nothing to earn it. And so you get weird manifestations of that like this kind of ad. Okay. So Carl Rove um, went on Fox News and he's going to talk about Biden's executive orders here and he makes a bunch of terrible arguments. Take a look. I mean, is a $3 trillion plan the relief Americans need when we're struggling with massive inflation and the supply chain issues and COVID? Uh, The answer is obviously no, but there's a deeper issue here that should worry us all a little bit more. This is a copy of the Constitution that I was given when I worked at the White House. It was given to me by the White House Chief of Staff, Andy Card, who wanted to remind every commissioned officer at the White House that we had taken an oath to defend the Constitution. Mm Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution says, all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress. That means that the Congress passes laws, not the President. And what the Progressive Caucus is saying is, is that we want, because we can't get a majority in the Congress, there are 52 members of the United States Senate who oppose the Build Back Better plan. Uh, two of them are Democrats, Manchin and Cinema. There may be others, uh, but we've got a majority in the Congress who are not willing to pass this bill. So what, is the, what do the progressives say? Yeah. They say ignore the Constitution. Here's the other part of the problem with that. Article, nine, say, Article 1, Section 9 says that the Congress shall have the power, to, the sole power to appropriate money. So what do they want the president to do? They want the president to make law because they can't get it through the Congress, and they want the president to spend money that he has no power and no authority to spend. They're calling for essentially an undemocratic action, ignoring the Constitution of the United yeah. States. Are they so power-happy that they feel that, that we ought to uh, dismiss the Constitution in, in search of the Build Back Better plan? I, I think this is a, a horrendous moment, yeah. uh, and it demonstrates that, that they're concerned with power and power only. He's totally full of it. Um, Biden absolutely does have the constitutional authority to do all of these executive orders that we talk about on this show on a regular basis. So, for example, student loan debt elimination. You have this jackass would say, oh, wildly unconstitutional. He's not allowed to do that. That's like a dictator. The 1965 Higher Education Act passed under Lyndon B. Johnson. Very clear that the Secretary of Education has the right. They hold like 90% or something like that of the student loan debt. They have every right to change that amount or eliminate that amount, to wipe the slate clean. They have every right to do it. It's already, that power is already granted under the legislation. So you are just wrong in saying, well, you can't do that. Look, there are certain things that the president can't do through executive order. Everybody knows that. You know, most importantly, you have the power of the purse for Congress. So namely, they decide um, 
how to spend the money and where to spend the money. That's true. But if they already pass legislation that allocates uh, or delegates a certain aspect of the spending to the executive branch, well, then the executive branch, of course, has the ability and the right to do whatever they want with that. So like I said, 1965 Higher Education Act, he has every right to wipe the debt slate clean if he wants. He does, it, uh, he does an executive order through his Secretary of Education. They carry it out. Boom, we're done. And you can also do rolling student loan debt elimination, which is effectively a way of doing free college without, without having to have it go through Congress. Perfectly constitutional, perfectly legal. No serious expert would disagree with that. Universal health care. There's a provision of Obamacare that was added. Because of a specific area, I forget where the area was. Um, was it somewhere in Missouri or Montana? I forget. So don't quote me on that. But there's a provision of Obamacare where there's a, you know, a specific town that effectively was polluted or poisoned because of some decision that the federal government made. And so that provision says, look, under an emergency situation, the government could just pay the bills for uh, anybody's health care. And so you can use that emergency authority to say, we have a pandemic. Over 800,000 Americans are dead through no fault of their own. This is an emergency situation. So everybody's medical bills are paid for the duration of the pandemic. You can do that. You already have the authority to do that. When it comes to um, marijuana legalization, first of all, that has nothing to do with spending, so you could just do it on your own anyway. Um, but even if it did have something to do with spending, the, the president is in charge of the executive branch. The drug uh, scheduling and categorization is, was crafted by the executive branch, Schedule 1, Schedule 2, Schedule 3, Schedule 4, so on and so forth. You just change the scheduling of marijuana. Say, hey, look, based on the evidence, we know it's not nearly as bad as a lot of these other drugs, especially drugs that are listed as Schedule 1. So we're just going to drop it to Schedule 4, whatever, and thereby effectively uh, decriminalizing it. You can do that. All, look, you have the right and the ability to do all these things. You're commander-in-chief. You can do whatever you want with uh, the troops. You have every right. If you want to end a war, you can end a war. That doesn't have to go through Congress. The list goes on and on. Look, I could sit here. David Dane wrote a great article where he lays out everything that uh, Biden has the, the ability to do. And it's a lot more stuff than you think. The president of the United States is colossally powerful. Now, if Biden does happen to do things that I think he doesn't have the constitutional ability to do, I'll tell you guys. But the fact of the matter is, he ain't going to do those things. Now I'm going to do the things he has the right to do or the ability to do because he said a number of times, nothing will fundamentally change and he's not big on these executive orders. So that's to his detriment. But notice, this is why Karl Rove is squealing because he knows if Biden does a lot of these things, that'll make Biden more popular and that'll give them the Democrats a better chance in the next election. Karl Rove knows that. So now he's screeching and he's squealing and he's crying and he's moaning and he's like, dude, whatever you do, don't do the, the executive orders because the Constitution or something, just don't do them, don't do them. Because those things would be really popular, and it would help Biden. It would help Biden so much if he did these things. And by the way, I'm of the belief he should do things, maybe that are even borderline, that he may or may not be allowed to do, and then make the Republicans and make the court system slap it down. If Joe Biden came out and, I don't know, let's make one up, raised the minimum wage for the American people, to all Americans, $50 an hour, we did it through executive order. Well, there'd be a court case over that, and maybe Joe Biden would lose that court case. But you know who's going to come out looking like the good guy? Hey, that guy tried to raise your wages, and Republicans and, and the judicial branch shut the whole thing down. Guess what? If you vote for Joe, he'll continue to take bold action and continue to find creative ways to improve your life and take on the court system. That's a winning argument. I mean, FDR tried to pack the Supreme Court. Uh, so there you have it. Now, by the way, final point. Um, Barack Obama, eight years in office, 276 executive orders. 
Uh, Donald Trump, four years in office, 220 executive orders. So Trump was doing them at a, at a faster clip than Obama was. And I didn't hear Karl Rove complaining about those. And the reason is he actually ideologically agrees with Trump on most of the stuff he did. So therefore, all of a sudden, no screeching and moaning about the Constitution and our rights and all that. No, all that's gone because Karl Rove ideologically agrees with Trump. So it's okay when he does it. I just don't want Biden to do actual good things for the American people. He was a, Karl Rove was in the Bush administration. George W. Bush shredded the Constitution a thousand ways. For him to talk about the Constitution now is absurd. It's absurd. That's the administration that did torture, that got rid of due process and habeas corpus, that waged illegal wars based on bad information and lies. You have no right to talk about the Constitution if you were part of the administration that was worst when it came to the Constitution. So anyway, there you have it. Uh, Joe, do the executive orders. And this is all sad because it's a moot point because he's not going to do them. And he's going to listen to the likes of Karl Rove, which says a lot about Joe Biden. All right, now let me go back. I missed a segment. We're going to throw it in here now. Final story of the day. It'll be a quick one. All right, so Twitter permanently bans Marjorie Taylor Greene. BBC News says Marjorie Taylor Greene, Twitter bans Congresswoman over COVID misinformation. So um, this is, I believe this is the fifth strike. It's the fifth strike for Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, So they say Representative Greene came out and said the ban proved that the company is, quote, an enemy to America. In a lengthy statement posted to the social media outlet Telegram, the 47-year-old said social media platforms can't stop the truth from being spread far and wide and accused Twitter of aiding unidentified enemies in a communist revolution. Yeah, Twitter, super communist. Her official congressional account, which staffers appear to post on infrequently, remains active. So she still has an account, but it's her official Congress account. Her personal account was the one that was banned. The congresswoman's ban comes after she tweeted on Saturday falsely about extremely high amounts of COVID vaccine deaths in the U.S. In a statement issued to the BBC, a Twitter spokesperson said that Representative Green has been banned for repeated violations of its coronavirus misinformation policy, which allows for four strikes, I guess four strikes, not five, with varying suspensions from the platform before issuing a permanent ban. The social media giant had issued her with a fourth strike in August after she falsely posted that coronavirus vaccines were failing and called on regulators not to approve the new shots. Quote, we've been clear that per our, our strike, per our strike system for this policy, we will permanently suspend accounts for repeated violations of the policy, the spokesperson said. So um, every time she was banned, she definitely said stuff that was verifiably incorrect. There's a lot of COVID misinformation out there. There's no doubt about it. Now, it's also true, though, that the official, like the CDC and all the official institutions also have gotten things wildly wrong about COVID every step of the way. Remember Fauci early on saying masks don't work. There's no reason to wear a mask. Well, that switched pretty soon. Remember early on when everybody would say it's misinformation, it should be banned to say that COVID may have come from a a lab in Wuhan. Well, now we know that's not so crazy that, uh, in fact, it is likely that it came from there. You had people were directly involved with this admitting, yeah, it could have come from there. Even Fauci in emails admitting, yeah, it could have come from there. So there's a problem here. Marjorie Taylor Greene spreads dangerous misinformation, without a doubt. Um, but also, there's been misinformation at every step of this propaganda from every corner. So even though what she's doing is dangerous and wrong and terrible, 
I don't think you can ban her. Because any sort of objective upholding of the standard would have the frickin' CDC banned from Twitter and the World Health Organization and the UN and Fauci himself and almost every politician in the U.S. Because when you're trying to figure out what's going on in a pandemic, sometimes you latch on to something and you, you promote it, and it turns out to not be true. And that's happened so many times in this pandemic. The whole problem with Twitter doing what they're doing here is Who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? Who's going to watch the watchmen? You can't have a ministry of truth because the ministry of truth has its own uh, blind spots and its own biases and its own issues. And so nobody can exercise that power accurately and correctly. So you just can't have a situation where you ban people for stuff like this. Now, again, I say this fully understanding that it's not a good solution. It's just the least bad solution. And we've seen it time and time again. I just don't like this ban-happy stuff. I don't like this massive slippery slope that we've already gone fully down. You know, because it's now it's for everything. You saw Hassan Piker and Bosch got uh, suspended from Twitch because they said the word cracker. Bosch didn't even use it calling anybody a cracker. He was just talking about the term cracker, and he was banned for it. There were prominent Antifa accounts that were banned on Twitter. So I know originally people were like, get rid of the far-right accounts, and people would rejoice if there was some extremists on the right who were kicked off. But now you've laid the groundwork and the precedent is set. And of course the right is going to scream bloody murder. And then they'll turn around and start banning lefties. We saw this with the proper not blacklist. Remember when, oh my God, Russian disinformation and, and these are bot accounts and these are accounts that are doing the bidding of foreign governments. And then Twitter banned all these lefty accounts and they weren't even the things that they said they were. They weren't Russian accounts or anything like that. So You have to lean on the side of freedom as much as possible. And the fact of the matter is, she's a congresswoman. She has her official Congress uh, Twitter account now. And she has every right, if she wants to, take it away from her staff, and then she's going to start tweeting through her official congressional account. So on top of disagreeing with it in principle, it's also the case that it's not going to have any effect at all, because then she's going to tweet from there. Now, my guess is she's going to keep doing COVID misinformation, and then they'll ban that too. Well, look. This happened with Trump, too. They, on some social media sites, they gave him basically the Internet death penalty. I don't agree with that. And I do think it's a powerful response when people also say, you have Taliban leaders who are active on Twitter, but Trump is banned and Marjorie Taylor Greene is banned. That doesn't make any sense. Now, what they say is, well, it's about uh, violations of our, our policies. So Trump violated the policies while using Twitter. The Taliban people didn't do it. But that almost shows how hollow the idea is in the first place, because, you know, you could have ruthless, vicious murderers and people who do genocide or people who are serial rapists or whatever. As long as they don't violate COVID policies, they're totally fine to talk. But if you violate, you know, a Twitter policy, you get banned. It's just it's so arbitrary and it makes absolutely no sense. And I don't agree with that. I don't agree with it at all. So, um I, w- I, don't, I wouldn't ban these people. I want to see what the crazy people are saying. I want to see what they're saying. And I don't think banning it even has the desired effect. Now you just made them martyrs, and now you made it so this stuff is it's the Streisand effect, right? You're going to make it so more people flock to whatever the nonsense is that they're saying. I mean, I, I just saw right before I came on air, Joe Rogan, uh, I think YouTube banned certain clips from Rogan's podcast when Rogan was talk to these, uh, talking to these anti-vaccine doctors. And uh, understand something. I think that I saw one of those clips, and I think the guy's wrong. I mean, look, there's a reason. We have, what, a million doctors in the U.S., 
and even if 1% of them are pushing anti-vax stuff, you do the math on that. What is it? 10,000 doctors who believe in the incorrect position uh, and they're against the vaccine. So, but what are you going to do? Just ban any of them and all of them from ever talking about it on any social media platform? You can't do that. You can't do that. But they're effectively trying to do it. And if anything, now more people are going to flock to Spotify and Streisand effects. It's going to have the opposite of the intended effect. You think you're policing discourse for the better, but you're not. And even if I actually agree on the substance here, which I do, that Marjorie Taylor Greene spreads spreads dangerous COVID vaccine misinformation, one of the Joe Rogan guests or or two of them were spreading uh, COVID misinformation, even if I agree with that, and I do, you're not going about it the right way. This isn't what you do. You can't just ban it. You can't just say, well, it's like covering your eyes and going, la, 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 doesn't exist, la, 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 la. It's childish. And... um, what we need to do, set up a system where all the big social media outlets uh, are effectively protected by the First Amendment. You regulate them as public utilities. You expand free speech protections. Now, that doesn't mean you could do libel, slander, defamation, direct threats of violence, doxing, targeted harassment. All those things would still be illegal. But at least you'd have an open and transparent process whereby you go through it. And you don't have tech oligarchs with shadowy Uh, you know, boards that have their own biases and their own problems making all the decisions. So even though I despise Marjorie Taylor Greene, I think she's wrong about all this stuff about COVID, um, you you can't do this. You just can't do this. And by the way, it is, what is it, 20% of the population, 25% of the population that believes in in anti-vaccine conspiracies to one extent or another? You just want to ban them all from social media? Now, maybe some of you listen and you go, yes, okay, well then just at least own the fact that you're deeply authoritarian. At least own it. You can take that position, but you can't turn around and say, like, I believe in social freedoms. No, you don't. That's the definition of authoritarianism is like, I get ban it. Banning people from saying things that are wrong. I, people are allowed to say wrong things. I, I don't know how else to put it, but you need to, if you're on the left, you have to actually embrace the leftist position, a true commitment to freedom of speech and open discourse and dialogue. And these, a lot, like, listen, these, a lot of these people are charlatans and they're con men and they're frauds. So you have to address that head on. You can't just go ban happy because of course, on top of it being wrong in principle, it's also gonna start hitting people you like and you care about. And it may even hit genuine experts. Anti-imperialist voices were the first on the chopping block in the Google algorithm with that proper not thing. Chris Hedges talked about that. You know, his outlets were totally deranked in the algorithm. This YouTube channel is totally deranked in the YouTube algorithm. This is what happens when you start micromanaging it. It's the establishment that controls the narrative and controls the boards and the powers that determine what happens, and they're always going to prioritize in a way that's best for them, for them. And sometimes they'll get it right on the substance like they do about COVID vaccines, but oftentimes they'll get it wrong on the substance, like when it comes to war, for example. So anyway, there you have it. Do not bring her back. I hate her, but... She shouldn't be banned. She's just going to go use her congressional thing anyway. But we're already way down the slippery slope, and I don't think there's any going back. And that's not good for anybody, especially, especially if you're somebody on the left who might have some edgy views. You think your views are common sense and obvious, but a lot of people disagree with them. You know, you might be like, oh, yeah, let's ban the far right. But then at a certain point, they'll scream bloody murder, and Twitter might turn around and ban all tankies or all communists or all Marxists or even socialists. I mean, the U.S. government had listed among a group of extremists with, like, far-right groups. They also just put socialists. 
I remember that story from Ken Klippenstein covering it. So be careful what you wish for, because you just might get it. All right, guys. I'm done, baby. I love all you. Everybody have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. Peace.